When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Publius Ovidius Nasso, or Ovid to most of us, a Roman poet and the author of Metamorphoses, one of the great pieces of Western literature that has been translated hundreds of times since its creation in the 8th century. Metamorphoses, which means Book of Transformations, details the history of the world from its creation all the way until the death of Julius Caesar. In between, there are hundreds of stories based on the theme of metamorphosis, transforming into something else. Many of these stories are very similar to their Greek counterparts, but with a few slight changes. Today we'll be taking a look at five stories, some of which are fairly well known, and others less so. The first story today is the tragic tale of Callisto. I will be mentioning the Roman names of the deities that appear in today's stories, but for the most part, to make it easier for everyone, including myself, I will also be using their more common Greek names. The story begins with Jove, or Zeus, scouring the land surveying the affairs of men. In the woods, his attention is caught by a beautiful huntress. Callisto, the daughter of King Lycoon. Callisto is described as a warrior of Diana, which means she was a devout follower of Artemis, or part of the cult of Artemis. The cult of Artemis valued nature, hunting, and chaste, given Artemis was a virgin goddess. When Callisto found a place to rest in the forest, she put down her bow and her spear, Assuming his wife Juno, or Hera, would never find out about this prank, as Ovid refers to it, Zeus appeared to Callisto, but not as himself. Instead, he took the form of Artemis. When Callisto saw her queen before her, she was elated. Hail my queen, greater than Jove I say, thou Jove should hear. Normally Zeus would take great offence to a statement like this, but he was delighted he had chosen the right form to seduce Callisto. When Zeus made his advances, his true appearance was revealed to Callisto, and she tried to fend him off, but was unsuccessful. Once he was done, Zeus retired to the heavens, leaving Callisto to wander the forest distraught at having broken her vow of chastity. Zeus's plan to have this affair disguised as Artemis was unsuccessful, as Hera had seen everything. Wandering through the forest, Callisto came across Artemis once again, but this time she was hesitant. Was this another of Zeus's tricks? Followed by her nymphs and other companions, Callisto soon recognized her patron goddess. She was invited to bathe in one of Artemis's sacred springs, which were known for their purity. When they reached the spring and the nymphs confirmed that there were no prying eyes, they undressed and entered the water. 
The only person not to enter was Callisto, who could no longer hide her look of shame. Eventually she was stripped and her secret was revealed. Gazing upon the shape of her body, they could tell she was bearing a child. Be gone, Diana cried. You shall not stain my stream. Callisto bearing a child of Zeus was exiled from Artemis's cult. Everything she valued and had worked for was taken from her. This was only the beginning of her punishment, sadly. Hera, who had observed everything, was waiting for the perfect time to take her revenge, and that time was now. When she saw Callisto had given birth to a boy, that was the final straw. She grabbed Callisto by the hair and flung her to the ground. Callisto begged for mercy, but these prayers fell on deaf ears. She held out her arms and Hera laughed, as those arms were covered in thick fur. Her nails began to grow. The lips that Zeus lusted for became a hideous jaw. Her transformation into a bear was now complete. The only part of her that remained human was her heart, so she could feel pain and heartbreak. When she wandered through the forest, it was now Callisto being hunted. She would experience the horror of the hunt, as opposed to the thrill she enjoyed so dearly. Sixteen years later, she came face to face with a young hunter she recognized, her son, Arcus. When she tried to call out to Arcus, he saw nothing but a bear growling at him. Arcus took his javelin, and just before he unknowingly killed his mother, Zeus would intervene. He placed them both in the sky as constellations, Ursa Major and Minor. In other variations of this story, it ends with Callisto being killed by her own son, or Artemis. Although there isn't too much to be happy about in Ovid's interpretation, at least it ends with mother and son being reunited. In the kingdom of Lydia, the muses sung a beautiful song of a young weaver known as Arachne. Her mother had passed away, and her father, Idmon of Colophon, was known for his distinct purple dye. Despite her humble upbringing, Arachne's work was known in all of the surrounding kingdoms. The muses themselves would leave their home just to watch Arachne work. One would assume she had been trained by Pallas herself, but Arachne denied this, claiming her skill was her own. In this case, Pallas refers to Athena, and we know she was the patron goddess of weaving and crafting. This denial of Athena was enough hubris for her to pay Arachne a visit. Let her contend with me. Should I lose, there is no forfeit I will not pay. Athena transformed herself into an old woman and travelled to meet this remarkable weaver. When she found Arachne, she gave some advice. To always be humble and to ask for her harsh words against the gods to be forgiven. Arachne's response is both arrogant and provoking. You're too old. Your brain has gone. You've lived too long. The years have done for you. Talk to your daughters. Talk to your son's wives. Do not think your words have weight. My own advice is all I need. Why doesn't Pallas come by herself? 
Why should she hesitate to match herself with me? Having given Arachne the chance to apologize, this response is the final straw for Athena. She threw away her disguise and revealed herself. The surrounding nymphs and women of Lydia all knelt for their patron goddess, and so they agreed a contest to see whose skills were superior. Athena's tapestry showed the Olympians in all their glory. Arachne's tapestry consisted of the same gods and goddesses, but instead she detailed what she believed to be their flaws. If Athena's piece painted the gods in a positive light, Arachne's was certainly negative, and displayed the same hubris which resulted in this contest to begin with. Inspecting Arachne's work, Athena could find no fault. The tapestry had been woven to perfection. However, its contents were a crime against the heavens. Athena tore the tapestry, took the wooden shuttle she had used during the contest, and struck Arachne on the forehead. After the fourth strike, Arachne could take the punishment no longer. She placed a noose around her neck, but as she hung, Athena caught and raised her. Live. Yes. Live but hang, you wicked girl. And know you'll rue the future too. That penalty your kin shall pay to all prosperity. Athena sprinkled her with the drugs of Hecate. Her hair began to fall out. Her nose and ears followed. Her head shrunk along with the rest of her body. Instead of arms and legs, there were eight long fingers by her sides. From her belly came a fine-spun thread. As a spider, Arachne could still weave her web, forever pursuing the former skills she once possessed, but always falling short. In some iterations of this story, Arachne is somewhat of a sympathetic character, but in Ovid's story she is unlikable at best, and it's very hard to argue her punishment was unjustified. Pygmalion was a renowned sculptor and a king in Cyprus. His experiences with women were negative enough for him to take a vow of celibacy. He still yearned for the companionship of married love, but distracted himself with his work. He worked on a sculpture made from white ivory, in the shape of a woman he thought to be perfect and more beautiful than any woman he'd ever seen before. The more time he spent around the sculpture, the more he fell in love with his own creation. The sculpture was so lifelike, eventually he could no longer distinguish between what was real and what wasn't. He would have conversations, caress the sculpture, and even dress her as if she was real. The Festival of Venus, or Aphrodite, was a very big occasion in Cyprus, and when it came, Pygmalion saw an opportunity. He made several offerings to Aphrodite at her altar. Afraid to discuss his secret out loud, he silently wished for a bride just like his ivory woman. When he returned home, his prayers were answered. The goddess of love had transformed his ivory statue into a real woman. He finally had the companionship and love he desired as weird as his methods were. Pygmalion's creation is never really given a name. In the years that followed, the sculpture-turned-woman would be known as Galatea. 
From the tower, the boy could only imagine what it was like to be outside. Daedalus felt a great sorrow for his son, whose childhood had been taken from him. He understood why Minos had imprisoned him, for the role he played in aiding Theseus to slay the Minotaur, but poor Icarus didn't deserve to share in his father's punishment. The tower was surrounded by water on all sides. Minos may own all else, but he does not own the air. Daedalus gathered rows of feathers and arranged them smallest first, followed by the larger ones. He used reeds to create a shape that would imitate a bird's wings, and to hold it all together he used wax. When Icarus saw his father's invention, he was overjoyed. Fitting the wings, Daedalus instructed his son, Take care, he said, to fly a middle course, lest if you sink too low the waves may weight your feathers, if too high the heat may burn them. Fly halfway between the two, and do not watch the stars. Set your course where I shall lead. As he inspected Icarus's wings one final time, he feared the worst. He kissed his son, and jumped from the tower leading the way. Icarus followed his father closely, but eventually he was distracted by the stars, and flew too close to the sun. The wax started to melt, and the wings began to fall apart. Daedalus could only watch helplessly as his son plummeted to his death. He buried his son on a nearby island. That portion of the sea would forever bear Icarus's name. Our last tale goes by the name of Mercury and Battus, the story of the theft of Apollo's cattle by Hermes. The story begins with Apollo in his field relaxing and playing music. Noticing him not paying attention, Hermes snuck into the meadow and stole all of the cattle, hiding them in the forest. There was only one witness to this crime, an older man known as Battus. Hermes approached the man. My good friend, whoever you are, if anyone inquires about this herd, say you've not seen them and to thank you for that service, take a cow for your reward. And so Hermes gave the man a cow. The man replied saying, That stone over there will tell sooner than I. Having successfully bribed the only witness to his crime, Hermes disappeared into the forest. Hermes, however, was no fool. He returned to test the old man's word, this time appearing with a completely different voice and build. Good fellow, help me. If you've seen some cattle hereabouts, speak up. They are stolen, and you shall have a cow and a bull, a pair. This was double the reward Hermes offered, and as predicted, the old man replied. There, on yon hill they'll be. The man pointed to where Hermes had taken the cattle. Hermes nodded and laughed. You rogue. You betray me to myself? Me to myself, I say. As the man previously stated that the stone would sooner tell his secret, Hermes saw the humor in transforming the man into stone, a stone that would be called Telltale, a reminder for all those to see the consequences of treachery. 
And that concludes today's look at some of the stories from Ovid's Metamorphoses. If you would like a second volume with five more stories, let me know your thoughts in the comment section. As always, I've been your host, Mythology and Fiction Explained. 